You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series, Planted. We are walking our people through how to cultivate a life of meditation that leads to encouragement and hope. Well, peace be with you. Uh, thank you all so much for your, your kindness and uh, just for, for the blessing um, of reflection. You know, I didn't realize it was uh, five years until the middle of the week this week. And um, I'm just so thankful for Sojourn Midtown, for each of you. It truly is a, a privilege and a pleasure to be able to serve you. And I'm uh, grateful for uh, my wonderful wife, uh, who without her, I would not have been able to, uh, probably still wouldn't be in a ministry. So I'm really grateful. Uh, let's pray and we're going to dive into today's text. <laughs> Uh, Father, you are so kind and so merciful to us all. None of us deserve your grace, and there's nothing we could ever do to earn your love. And I thank you. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your love, which is demonstrated uh, through Christ Jesus. And allowing him, Lord, to to take upon himself the wrath that that I deserve and that we deserve. I thank you that you are a faithful shepherd who tends to every single one of your sheep. And that you are willing to leave the 99 to save the one. And I pray, Father in tenderness and in truth that you will shepherd your flock even today through this word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I praise the Lord uh, just for his kindness and I praise him for uh, today's uh, passage, a passage that that I've been able to to kind of plant myself and root myself in uh, for... uh, over five years. It was a passage that I was discipled into uh, by a, uh, an elder mentor of mine, along with Psalm 127. And ever since I was discipled into this passage, it has kept me uh, through some, some dark, dark seasons. It, it has rooted me um, through some, some times that were incredibly difficult in my life. Um, I've never preached from this passage, and in fact, uh, this week I've just meditated and kind of read over it um, more than even sermonizing it because of, of just how, how much it means uh, to me. And I pray that this passage uh, will be a passage that you will be able to plant yourself in, to root yourself in, in different seasons as well. It's been a passage that has given me confidence and it's been a passage that has given me that has given me hope. This passage inspires me to uh, to be a a godly man. It inspires me to be a a faithful husband. It inspires me to be a father to which prayerfully my children can look up to. And one of the things that's amazing about this passage is is that it has what some has called a umbrella principle. 
And this umbrella principle is is that this passage uh, speaks of a, a man who fears the Lord and who walks faithfully with him. And as a result of fearing the Lord and walking faithfully with him, not only does God give him favor, not only does God cause him to flourish, but God causes those who are directly around him to flourish. And God places favor upon them as well. And so through this passage today, I want to talk from the subject of kingdom confidence, kingdom confidence. And as just simply showing that the kingdom citizen, the person who plants themselves in Christ and who fears him can live confidently knowing that God will cause their soul to prosper and those around them to prosper as well. Now, this passage puts in place or gives us a description of a of a man who is blessed, but it's not just for a man who is blessed with the family. I mean, we're going to see uh, throughout this this text that yes, it's talking about a man who fears the Lord, but but in essence, these principles apply to everyone. As in Psalm 1, it says, happy is everyone who fears the Lord. So this just isn't to the man who fears the Lord. This is to the, the woman who fears the Lord. And this is not just to uh, the person who is married. Ultimately, this is to anyone who is in the kingdom of God, to a person who is single as well. I want you to pause and I want you to imagine a scene with me. I want you to imagine that there is a, a tired farmer who has finished his long day in the vineyards. And the sun has gone down. And he sits down under one of the many fig trees surrounding his humble house. And his wife, who has spent the day alongside him in the field, uh, comes alongside him and sits with him. And then looking into the valley below at the fruitful vines, they reflect that this has been a, a good year. The crop is thriving. Their children are running around and they are happy. And the king, a faithful servant of Yahweh, has finally secured the borders and guaranteed the peace and safety of his people. Well, this is the Old Testament image of happiness. And this is what we see today. Psalm 128 is a wisdom psalm and a companion to Uh, My favorite psalm, Psalm 127, both are what is called a song of ascent. And that simply is the psalms that are from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. And these were songs that would have been sung by families as they left home on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh in his holy city. And the psalm begins with the blessing and it ends with a prayer. In this psalm, four times we see the word blessed or happy. And the author here uses two different terms um, which are related in Hebrew to describe the man that the Lord blesses and what blessings look like. Last week, Pastor Nathan, uh, a few weeks ago, I'm sorry, Pastor Nathan preached a Psalm 1. 
And in Psalm 1, it talks about the man who is planted by streams of living water, which yield its fruit in its season, and his leaves will never wither. And that is the biblical picture of what it means to be happy or what it means to be blessed. It means to to flourish. The image of happiness is given shape by the covenant made with Abraham and the blessings and cursings of the law given in Deuteronomy chapter 28. The covenant blessings of the law are simply the outworking of these promises. Thus, under the old covenant, happiness was a sign of God's covenant favor and the proof that God keeps his promises. For Israel, who were under a monarchy, happiness was directly connected to the covenant faithfulness of the king. When the king kept the covenant, the people were blessed. And we see this especially under the rule of David and Solomon. And so today, quickly, I want to zoom into this text and I want to walk through these important principles uh, that we see in its context. And then I want to zoom out of the original context and show how it applies to the new covenant and then to your life and to the life of our church. The first observation that we make in this psalm, as I said earlier, is that this psalm was specifically meant to first and foremost encourage men, though the principles go to everyone. Everyone can flourish in the Lord. But the person who flourishes in the Lord, look at the text, verse one, how happy, how flourishing is everyone who who fears the Lord. The key to the good life, the key to flourishing is the fear of God. To fear God means to have a deep respect of God. It is to be filled both with awe and dread as we think about him. A good way to think about the fear of God is to uh, think about electricity. When we turn on our lights, when we use appliances or plug in our computers into an outlet, we, we benefit from electricity. Electricity is good. In fact, life would be extremely difficult if we did not have electricity. We need, we want, we enjoy electricity. But the thing that we ought to always remember about electricity is that we should never play with it, right? We don't want to go and stick a screwdriver into an outlet just to see what might happen. While electricity is good, electricity is not something to play with. If you play with it, it can harm you. It doesn't want to harm you, but it will harm you. Electricity is meant to bless you. It's meant to help you to benefit. It's meant to help to support you. But if it, you take it lightly, it will burn you. And this is what it means to, to fear the Lord. God wants to bless you. God wants to support you. God wants to help you as you fear him and live for his glory. But if you play with him, you too can be harmed. The text says that to fear God practically means to walk in his ways. 
To walk in his ways as an old covenant Jew meant to walk according to his instructions and according to his law. As I said back in Psalm 1, we see that the person who walks in the path of the Lord is a person who surrounds themselves with godly counsel, counsel, not wicked ones. It's a person who meditates on the word day and night. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, hallelujah, happy, blessed is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commandments. In the new covenant, fearing God means to simply place one's faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and to walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ by living a life of obedience which embodies loving God wholeheartedly and neighbor as ourselves. In this text, the psalmist puts before us three principles that those under the old covenant can count on. Three principles that those who fear God and trust God can expect. And as we talk about uh, this passage and, and in my own life and ministry, uh, this, this passage has really kept me. There has been some amazing times in my ministry. I started by God's grace uh, at a church called Forest Baptist Church in, in 2006 uh, when I came down here to go to a Southern Seminary. I didn't know much about seminary. I knew absolutely nothing about the seminary. I was headed to New Orleans Baptist uh, Theological Seminary when Katrina hit. Um, that's where my first choice was. And after Katrina uh, hit, I had to find somewhere else to make my first choice. So my pastor sent me here. I was at a church on staff, did not want uh, to my, be a pastor until I was in my 50s. My father was a church planner and a, pla a pastor in Chicago. And Chicago is a very difficult place to, to plant a church. And I knew that the Lord was calling me to ministry, but I saw behind the scenes and how difficult ministry was. And as I uh, began my journey at Forest Baptist Church, I came on staff as a youth pastor. And at the time, I was working at the men's warehouse. I was also engaged to Amber and had a whole lot of student debt. I was working some 60 hours a week when the church found itself in crisis as uh, the pastor would have to step down under a moral failure. And the church and the associate pastors there at the time um, was just not walking in the spirit. In fact, they had become uh, the leaders of the church had actually embarrassed the church within the community. So the church just asked me to, to preach until they found someone. And almost by accident, I became the lead pastor of Forest Baptist Church. About six months in, I asked them, I said, how are we doing with the search committee? And the church said, there is no search committee. The church feels that, that, you, that you have been called to be the pastor and they're just waiting on you to realize it. Uh, which sent me into a time of, of, of deeply seeking the face of the Lord. And as I sought the face of the Lord, the Lord broke my heart for that church. He broke my heart for that community. I began to call mentors and ask them um, if they thought I was ready to pastor. And I expected every single one of them to say no. And every single one of them said, we can see the Lord blessing you in this way and blessing uh, this church uh, through your leadership. And I became the pastor. And the first three years at that church was extremely difficult. The people there were amazing, but they were under a different model uh, of ministry for the last uh, 12 years. And the last few years had just become unhealthy. And so the Holy Spirit had to take us back to the basics in order for us to grow. 
And it was in that time that I went through, um, even as I was shepherding the people, a Jeremiah type experience. I would experience a depression sometimes and, and heartache and pain as I saw people walk away from the Lord. Marriages not last. I buried uh, uh, more children, um, so many children, and, and held hands of members as they, as they passed on. And after about eight years as the lead pastor and the Lord revitalized the church and did more than I ever expected in ministry, the Lord called me here. Many of you know the story of Sojourn and how we went through trial after trial after trial for the first two and a half years. But it was the promises of Psalm 1 that the man who plants himself by streams of living water will bear fruit in his season that kept me. And it was this picture and the, the promise of this principle in Psalm chapter 28 that the man who fears the Lord and who walks according to his ways will flourish that kept me. And in this text, we see three types of flourishing and three principles the first is that the author says that the person who fears the Lord as a general principle, that they will reap what they have sown. That they will reap what they have sown. They will have a flourishing career. Look at verse number two. You will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy and it will be, go well for you. Not only will they reap what they have sown and have a flourishing career, but it says that they will have a flourishing wife in marriage. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. What an amazing picture we see of the man who fears the Lord, that, that his wife is, is flourishing. His wife is being a fruitful in, in all the areas of her life as a result of her husband setting a tone in the house of godly leadership, allowing her to, to flourish, encouraging her, nurturing her uh, with the word, walking before the Lord in such a way that it frees her to be herself, to invest in, the, in her family, to invest in the community. This psalm is also called a wisdom literature as it uses the same types of words that we see throughout the Proverbs. This woman has become a Proverbs 31 woman. She is living the good life. This text also says that the one who fears the Lord is the one who will have flourishing children. I love this picture. He says that the man has children and they are like olive trees. Some translation says olive shoots or olive plants around his table. I find this illustration interesting because if you study an olive plant, you know that typically it takes 15 to 20 years for it to fully develop. And olive plants also respond to what you give them. If nurtured correctly, they develop deep roots and become olive trees that can produce olives for over 2,000 years as they have roots, roots that become stronger. And the writer of this psalm is, is saying, as a general principle, the God-fearing man 
and woman, as they pour into their children, they will see flourishing. And the reason that I say as a general principle is because this, of course, is not a promise. Sometimes children don't flourish. And sometimes the fruit is delayed. Sometimes parents don't get to see their kids come to faith while they are alive. But parents, I want to encourage you to keep cultivating, to keep praying, to keep sowing seeds of the gospel and to remember that God is the one who gives spiritual life and that God delights in answering the prayers of his people because he is a kind and compassionate God. So I want to encourage you to have faith that he will honor your tears and your pleading. And if you're a parent here today and and you're on the older uh, stages of your life and perhaps you think about this text and you say, I live most of my life not fearing God, I want to encourage you that today is a wonderful day to begin. Or if you began recently to not underestimate what this later stage of your life in faithfully following God, how it can impact your children. This text gives me hope that if I, as a man, situate and plant myself in the will of God, that God in his season will allow me to bear fruit. And as a result of me bearing fruit, my wife will be fruitful as she fears the Lord and walks in the tone in which our house has been set and that my children will benefit as as well. But I love what the text says. Your children are like olive trees around your table. Don't miss that. Around your table. Kids are cultivated by what they are taught and what they catch. It's the principle of being taught and caught. I love what the psalmist says. They are like fruitful vines around the table. The table in the Jewish household was a place where the family gathered to learn the instructions of Yahweh, to feast and to fellowship. The table for the Jewish family was essential and important to the development of their kids. And I know that American society has, has changed a lot. And that the family a table has become less emphasized. But I want to encourage you, if you are a parent, to value time around the table. Fight for it. Slow down several days a week and to make sure that you are eating meals together. Take time to hear about your children's day, to pray for them, to open up the scriptures. And not only will this be a blessing to your child, but this will be a blessing to you as it will constantly remind you of what matters most and what God has given you to steward. God has called you to shepherd their little hearts. Studies have shown, and you can just Google, I spent about an hour this week just reading articles that has been published by, by ma- major uh, researchers from uh, universities like Stanford, as well as all kind of family organizations about the benefit of parents eating with their children. And even if it's not both parents, one parent regularly making a habit in general, Kids who have parents that take time to eat with them regularly have better grades, have more friends, 
and are more confident. And so I want to encourage you, my wife and I, we have uh, tried to grow in this and we're continuing to grow in this to make sure that you schedule quality time around the table. And when you're around the table with your kids to put aside distractions, turn off your cell phone, to look them in the eye and, and ask questions like, how was your day? What has made you sad this week? What has made you happy this week? What are some of the, the deeper thoughts that you've had this week? What are some questions that you've thought about, no matter how silly, that you just don't know the answer to? Take time to ask them, what are you thankful for? One of the things that we do around the table is we just go around and we just bless each other with things that we are thankful for. Affirm the, the good characteristics and qualities that you see in them, the things that they have been doing well. The last principle we see here is, is kind of uh, shown up in, in a prayer. The person who is flourishing, the person who is happy, the person who is blessed is, is a person who, as a result, can have confidence that, that the community around them can flourish and that their city and even their, their country, as, as many people put their faith and trust in God can have an impact on their location. The psalmist ends with a benediction or a closing prayer. He says, may the Lord bless you from Zion. Zion is the capital a city of Israel. It's where God's presence and his temple is so that you would see the success of your city and your country. And remember, uh, these persons, they were traveling up to Jerusalem uh, for festivals some of them were not living in Jerusalem. Some of them were not even living in Israel. But as they sung this song, it was a reminder, just as TPJ says, that wherever you find yourself, you can bloom where you're planted. And this umbrella principle, God can use you to change the direction of people's lives so that they can flourish as well. This happiness, this blessedness, this abundant, flourishing life, it doesn't come from stuff and it doesn't come necessarily from uh, wealth. Rather, one flourishes first and foremost when their soul is right with God. Listen to me. Soul prosperity is the best prosperity. While the psalmist focuses on this ideal, happy life for many, a life in which uh, uh, their work is flourishing, their wife is flourishing, their children is flourishing. We know in the new covenant that ultimately the, the one who is happy is the one who is right before God because of what Jesus Christ has done for them. It's the one who has been blessed to be poor in spirit blessed to mourn, blessed with the gift of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. When we find our identity in Jesus, when we remember what he has done for us, like the apostle Paul, we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. The only way to find this soul prosperity, like a vine and like an olive plant is to be is to be planted as a seed in the ground. The only way to find flourishing is is to die. 
Trees start with a seed being planted. The seed dies, and over time it grows to, to be what it is. And Jesus put it this way in John chapter 12, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces fruit. Unless you repent, pick up your cross and follow Jesus, you won't have true soul prosperity and you don't have confidence that in due season, God will allow you to prosper in the way that he has ordained for your life. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And this is what it means to deny yourself. It means even those things that you long for and that you desire, you give them to the Lord. And if you don't have them, you count that as the cross that God has called you to bear. Jesus modeled for us in Gethsemane what it means to bear the cross. It means to even have a good desire, even to know that God's will for your life is death, that you say, Lord, if it be your will, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours. When we die in this way, we actually find life because we surrender to the one who gives life and the one who has a very specific plan for your life. And his plan for your life is going to work for your ultimate good. His plan for your life is going to work better for you than the life that you could have planned for yourself. His plan for your life is going to work for the the best long-term flourishing for you and not only for you, but for his glory. I got two specific encouragements that I want to give us as a church as we look at this passage. The first is this. As a church, I want us to embrace the vision of the church as a flourishing family. This text reminds us that a a loving spouse and growing children are a great blessing. And it's a great picture of what families can be. But we all know that sometimes, even for God-fearing people, things don't always work out this way. Sometimes, like Job, tragedy strikes. Sometimes because of the sin in our heart and the evil that is in the world, families break apart. Sometimes the husband that you thought feared the Lord or the wife that you thought feared the Lord stopped fearing him or you realize they never feared him at all. As we read this text, some of us wish to have families but don't, and others of us have families but wish we have different ones. And this is where we must embrace Jesus' picture of the church as family. In Mark chapter 3, verse 35, Jesus said, Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. When one enters into a relationship with God, they adopt a new, a diverse, a multi-gifted family. 
In Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. If today you feel lonely because you no longer have your mother, no longer have your father, or you have a mother and a father who's not walking in the fear and adamation of the Lord, and there's not not intimacy and, and closeness, I want to encourage you to see that God has put you into a family. He has adopted you into his family. And in his family, there are no one who is fatherless. There is no one who is an orphan. The application to this passage is that those who put their faith and trust in Christ, they receive multiple fathers. They receive multiple mothers. They receive multiple sisters. They receive multiple brothers. The psalmist says God in his holy dwelling is a father of the fatherless and a champion of widows. And how is God a father to the fatherless and a champion uh, to widows in his most practical senses? One is through his Holy Spirit as he reminds us and as the Spirit causes us to cry out, Abba. But two, in the most practical way, is through his church. God has called his church to be this picture of flourishing as we individually plant ourselves in his word and experience experience the nurturing of the water of the word. We flourish and we become a community of people that flourish, that are other-centered, that pour our lives into others and we flourish together. But second, I just want to give a very specific encouragement to men. While everyone can flourish in this way, whether married or or, or single, there is this principle of happiness, of blessedness, of, of flourishing in our work and in our relationship. Men, I want to encourage you to be an umbrella man. A man who faithfully carries the umbrella that others can come and and walk under and and find God's presence and favor. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're young, whether you all be an umbrella man. Our church, our society desperately needs men to step up and to be men. We need men like Paul who says, when I was a child, I, I put away I, uh, childish things, but now that I, I did childish things, but now that I am a man, I put away childish things. We need men to step up, to show up, and to man up. And when I talk about manning up, I'm not talking about in a, a cultural sense, in a way that is often characterized in our culture. And I'm not talking about even uh, sometimes uh, uh, bad examples of manhood through through people who would claim that it's biblical manhood. When I talk about manhood, I'm talking about manhood as it is modeled by Jesus. Not manhood that is put in place sometimes by um, aggressive, insecure men. Men who say that in order to truly be a man, you have to watch sports or drive classic cars or, or watch UFC. No, real men come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. They have all types of hobbies and professions. But men who love Jesus are 
the happiest of men. They are the most blessed of men because they abide in him. Jesus modeled real manhood by living with a single mission, which was to do his father's will. Jesus modeled real manhood by leading through love. Jesus modeled real manhood by being a selfless friend, by washing his disciples' feet. Jesus modeled manhood by treating women with respect and dignity as co-heirs and sisters, not sexual objects in those that were biologically beneath them. Jesus modeled manhood, but not by not living his life for his own advantage, but by willingly laying down his life for others. Jesus modeled manhood by being both vulnerable and gritty. And man, if our friends, if our families, if our church, if our community, and if the world is going to flourish, it is because we have died to self. It is because we have picked up Jesus's vision of manhood. It is because we have chosen to live our life, not for our own advantage, but for his to to crash into heaven, not to cruise into heaven. It is because we have determined to reject passivity, to accept responsibility, to lead courageously and to invest in eternity. That's what I call a man that rallies, R-A-L-I. Originally coined by a man named John Bryson, real man reject passivity. We don't stand by like Adam and allow things to take place. Adam was present when Eve was being uh, tempted by the serpent and he didn't say anything. No, we reject passivity and we accept responsibility when things go wrong in our our home, when things go wrong in relationships, we don't start with what the other person did. We start with what we could do better. And we take responsibility for what we can take responsibility for. And we lead courageously when things look dark, when a ceiling is falling in, when money is tight, when our wives are down, when our children are hurting, We, by God's grace, we don't panic. We, by God's grace, we don't give up. We, by God's grace, we go deeper into our Savior. We fast, we pray, we cry out to the Lord, and we step out on faith with courage. Even when we can't see light at the end of the tunnel, we keep telling ourselves, in due season, we will flourish. In due season, God will bless the work of my hands. In due season, God will allow me to see fruit with those who I've labored with and discipled. In due season, he will give me strength like an eagle's wing. In due season, he will vindicate my name for his glory. In due season, my righteousness will shine forth like the S-U-N because I have placed my trust in the S-O-N. And we invest in eternity. We live our lives not to see how big our 401k can get. 
Though that is not necessarily a sin to, to seek to prosper, to leave wealth for our children and our children's children. But that's not our first goal. We live our life not for the praise of man. We live our life for the praise of Jesus, desiring one day to hear the words, faithful servant, well done. You have been faithful and little, and now I will give you much. We give, live our life so that one day we can say, Jesus, you didn't lie to me. What I gave you, you kept. What I stored up, you protected. What I trusted you with, you doubled. Jesus, there is no one like you. We need men to stand up and say, I will. I will bless the Lord at all times. And his praises will continually be in my mouth. I will walk faithfully with the Lord in my singleness. I will treat my sisters as beloved daughters of the king. I will invest in my marriage and make sure that we are living from the inside out. I will wash my wife with the water of the word. I may not know as many verses and I may not be naturally as spiritually inclined, but I will make sure the job is getting done. I will spend time with my kids. Even if I didn't have a father who spent time with me, I will slow down to figure out how I can bless my children. I will stand up. Serve in the church, be a deacon in the church, be a man of nobility. And I will do this not in my own strength, but in the strength of the one who promises me that if I plant myself in him, I will flourish like that tree planted beside streams of living water. Do I have some men who want to stand up with me and say, by God's grace, I will. Come on, clap your hands and put your hands together if you want to be a Psalm 128 man. Oh, you can do better than that. Clap your hands and stand up with me. If you say the buck stops here, I will be an umbrella man. I will be a man who keeps my eye on the cross. I will be a man who trusts the Lord with all my heart, who leans not to my own understanding. But in all my ways, I will acknowledge him and he will direct my path. And sisters, you be a flourishing woman by doing the same thing, valuing Christ over everything. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. You are faithful. You, Father God, can empower us to live the abundant life and the good life. And because of you, as we are faithful to you, we can have confidence that we will flourish in due season. That we will have green leaves. Even in times of drought. That even in the midst of darkness, there is light and that you are a God who will move the clouds out of the way so that we can see your reality. Raise us all up, Lord. 
raise us all up. In Jesus' name, amen. And every Sunday we take a meal together called communion. And in front of you, if you're a Christian, I want to ask you to partake uh, with me. If you're not, you can just sit down and, and receive and observe. And there's no shame in that. Though our heart is that you would put your faith and trust in Jesus. Take a, the wafer, which represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us. And let's eat it. Let's take and drink this juice, which represents the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us, and let's drink it. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.